This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. This is the word of God. Evening, everybody. I'm Simon, one of the pastors here. It's great to see you. Thank you to Jess and to Claire and to Mark. Um, as Jess said, probably I should have done the notices at the beginning. Um, just a couple of things into this week. It's um, refresh our home groups again, uh, starting after a break on Tuesday. So if you're not sure what's going on, just contact your leader. If you're not in a group but would like to be, uh, then come and speak to me, uh, speak to Neil. Speak to anyone who looks like they're at home here in this building, and they'll be able to point you in the right direction. Um, what else? Uh, Saturday, if you're free, first thing in the morning, nine o'clock, we're going to put the Christmas decorations up. So if you want to come down then, um, that would be great. And then next Sunday evening at this time, uh, we're going to take a break uh, from Amos, uh, and we're going to go back to our courses. So I'll do the next in our biblical theology uh, session, looking at the big story of the Bible, and then Neil, and then either Dan or Pete will take us through the next stage in uh, systematic theology, looking at uh, what the Bible says about some big uh, truths and some big issues. Um, Christmas cards. Thank you to everybody who signed Christmas cards and packed prisoner presents this morning. Uh, it was incredible how quickly it was all done. Um, with the Christmas cards, feel free to take a box, uh, sign up for the one that you've taken, and don't do it just yet, or else people will be like, Christmas already? <gasps> no. Um, but uh, over the next week or so, um, we can set the hairs racing. Is that everything? Yeah. I don't know why I'm looking at Neil. Um, Wonderful. Brilliant. Exactly. Great. Um, turn with me back to um, Amos chapter 8, page 923. Amos um, 
chapter eight uh, this, this week and then two weeks tonight, and then we will finish um, this, this great book, Amos uh, chapter eight, page nine to three. So I don't know if you realize, but this Thursday, it marks a year since the first COVID vaccination was approved uh, for use in the UK. Incredible scientific effort across, uh, across the whole world, numerous countries, and humanly speaking, it has been the, the top reason why things have, for now, got back to something uh, approaching normal. For all of us who were locked down and were socially distanced, it was the remedy that we needed at that moment. But over and above the pandemic, even regardless of everything that's gone on, we all know there are difficulties and there are struggles in our lives that no vaccination can deal with. We need something bigger. We need a remedy that gets to the very heart of our troubles. So then it deals with those things that are so deep and so profound that medicine can't get close enough. You know, the Bible speaks of a remedy that's to be taken when our struggles against sin are at the point of overwhelming us, when we don't seem like we can keep going without falling again. It speaks of a remedy against the suffering that comes from living in the valley of the shadow of death. It speaks of a remedy against the feelings of hopelessness and helplessness that come from living in this big world that doesn't even know that you exist, that sees you as a tiny pinprick. It speaks of a remedy that all of us, without question, without exception, need. And this remedy can be summed up in one word, avar, avar. Now, it's a Hebrew word that this time last week I'd never heard of. But to get to grips with it, to get to grips with it, we need to see it in action. Now, back in Exodus chapter 33, Moses, the great leader of the people who brought them out of Egypt, he was having a crisis. See, he'd been up Mount Sinai. He'd been in the very presence of God, receiving the law and meeting with the great glorious Lord. He comes down the mountain and what have the people done? They built two golden calves and are in the process of worshipping them. Here is the God that took you out of Egypt. As he speaks to the Lord, as Moses pours out his heart, he longs for understanding. He longs for assistance. He longs for confirmation that he is still doing the right thing. And he concludes with these words in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 18. Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord responds in verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass by in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The Lord will avar. He will pass by. And it was just what Moses needed. So to 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah, who is depressed and suicidal. He wants the Lord to take his life. He doesn't see anything uh, good in carrying on. He seemingly has no hope. And all of his work, in his eyes, has come to absolutely nothing. It's all been a complete and utter waste. The Lord comes to this desperate prophet and says these words in 1 Kings 19, verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The Lord will Avar, pass by. 
And it was just what Elijah needed. See, when related to the God of Israel, Ava is a demonstration of the glory of the Lord, the core of who God is, his very nature on display. That's what people see when he passes by. It's the profound heart of this word, Ava. He will pass by. And this Ava, it leads to sin being seen as ugly and deformed when compared to the unsurpassed beauty of the Lord's. Ava leads to suffering, being seen as not comparable to the worth and the beauty and the glory of what is to come, the hope that there is in the sovereign redeemer. Ava leads to the poor and the humble being lifted up as they experience the joy, the inexpressible joy of being united to the great God of the universe. Each and every day, you and I, we need Ava. We need Ava. And as we come to Amos chapter 8, Israel is on the verge of losing it and losing it forever. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were last in Amos, Sam took us through chapter 7 and the first three of five visual aids that the Lord showed Amos to communicate his judgment, to help the people understand what it was that God was doing. Now, after the first and the second, the locusts and the fire, Amos cried out to the people, Lord, the people can't cope with this. And there are these beautiful words. The Lord, in his amazing grace, relented. He said, okay, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. But after the third picture, the plumb line, Amos was silent. And the chapter ends with these words at the end of chapter seven, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Exile is coming. It's coming at the hands of the Assyrians. And as chapter 8 begins, the shadow lengthens. Chapter 8 and verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. He's a sharp one, is Amos. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And Neil gave the NIV a bit of a kick in this morning. Um, and in about a minute, I'm going to do the same thing. But before we do that, because it's all swings and roundabouts, I'm going to compliment it and say how in one case, it is better than the other translations that I looked at this week. When it talks about the ripe fruit and the time being ripe, my people of Israel, there's a pun in the Hebrew that doesn't come across when you translate it literally, like many of the translations do. But the NIV does a brilliant job of communicating in English what the Lord is doing, taking the ripeness of the fruit and the ripeness of the time, and it is brilliant. However, from that high, the NIV then spoils it. The final part of the verse should read, the time is right for my people Israel. I will pass by them no longer. Ava. I will ava no longer. The Lord will no longer ava. No longer will I pass by you. No longer will you see my glory. No longer will you get that universal remedy that you need each and every day, the one that you cannot live without. I've relented. I've relented again. Even in my judgment, I still call you my people. Did you notice that? They're still my people. Yet the time is ripe for you, and I will no longer pass by. You will no longer see my glory. I will no longer avar. And for the rest of this chapter, we see the consequences 
of that, what it looks like when people don't see the glory of the Lord, when they never see the Lord of our. And though, again, as it has been for all of the chapters so far, it will be difficult to listen, but we need to hear it because we have a tendency to slip away from the places that we are supposed to be, to take our eyes off the Lord when temptation is hard, when suffering is hard, when life in general is hard. This is what life looks like when the Lord declares an end to Avar, and it should shock us once again out of our complacency, out of our thinking that we can just whistle our way through life and everything will be fine. And we need to hear it for those who don't know Christ, who are blind to and ambivalent about the glory of the Lord, who need an Avar, who need the Lord to pass by, and they're in danger because time is running out. As the Lord brings an end to the nation of Israel in this form, we need to be aware that there are people for whom the Lord's patience will come to an end. So as we get into the consequences of the Lord no longer passing by, we need to be examining our own hearts and crying out to God for those who don't know him. So we're going to begin and see that with no avow, with no passing by, there is no justice. It's a running theme throughout Amos's prophecy. If you've been here for all of them, if you spent time looking at Amos, you will see the Lord's heart for justice on display. See, back in chapter two, the first time that Israel is mentioned, remember when Neil took us through that, the Lord speaks of all the nations around Israel and they're looking proud and thinking this is great. And then he focuses in on Israel and he says these words in chapter two and verse six. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. What's the first thing he holds against them? They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. See, because the Lord is a God of justice, because it is fundamental to who he is, so his people should be too. But they're dishonoring him with their mistreatment of the poor, those in their midst who need them to be like the Lord to them. And an example of this is here in chapter 8. The three parts to this section. As you look through, you can see how this chapter is divided up into three, all beginning with in that day. You see one in verse three, one in verse nine, uh, and one in verse 13, in that day. And this one, this first one, starting in verse three, is top and tailed with judgment. Verse three, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. And then verse seven, the Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they've done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. See, in verse three, the Lord prophesies the day when the Assyrian armies will come and lay siege to the land. The rejoicing in the temple from the people who thought they were fine, who thought that the Lord's blessing was upon them because they had a temple, because they had these rituals and these sacrifices they could do. This great rejoicing, God is with us, will instantly turn to wailing and to sorrow as they realize that their hope was in themselves and there is nothing that can carry them against the power of the Assyrian army. The death count will be vast. There'll be bodies everywhere. And at the end, there will just be silence. Silence. Nothing to say in the presence of the God who has wrought against their injustice, against their false religion, against their idolatry. No answer. His judgment has come. 
and they stand in silence before him. And it's guaranteed. In verse 7, the Lord swears by himself, by his very nature, by his very heart. I am swearing that this is what is going to happen. And he promises never to forget their sin and rebellion. What a comfort it is to know that the Lord remembers our sin no more. And we hold him to it. But now he's saying, I will remember your sin. I will remember it all. And I will pour out my judgment upon it. And having warned of the Assyrians, he now speaks of the earthquake that we heard of in the very first verse of Amos, chapter 1 and verse 1. He talks about it, about the land causing it to tremble, to rise and to fall as the earthquake hits and destroys the, the, the land. So a great army to destroy the people and an earthquake to destroy the land. Why? Injustice. Verse 4, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. What a statement that is. What a statement it is. It pictures a people for whom the poor are an inconvenience. We wish we could just get rid of them. And so we're going to live as if they don't exist, to be walked over, to be ignored in pursuit of our own gain. And the Lord Theramos then gives voice to the hidden thoughts in verse 5, and then some commentary in verse 6, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Do you notice these people, they're still engaged in religious life. They're still there at the new moon festival. They're still there. They're still observing the Sabbath. But their minds are on profit. Their minds are always thinking, how can I make the next dollar? How can I make the next I guess, shekel? How can I make the next bit of money to boost uh, my wealth and to boost my standing before the people? They're thinking about personal gain. They're not thinking about worship. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows what is in their hearts as they do all the right things, as they attend all the right events, as they observe all the things they're supposed to observe. The Lord knows what is on their hearts and what is on their minds. And he sees them cheating people in business too. They buy as cheaply as possible. They sell as expensively as possible, using dishonest scales and panning out the good grain with the sweepings of the floor. No matter that these things are specifically mentioned in the law of God as being things that God detests. Forget about that. We're going to do it anyway because it makes us rich and it gives us what we think we need. They were all in for whatever they could get for themselves and forget about everybody else. If you're poor, well, just another person to go under my shoe. It's not much of a leap, is it, to see that honesty in business is important to the Lord. Whatever area that we work in, we should show integrity about all that we do. See, those in, uh, in Christ, they work for the glory of God, serving him before and above all others. He is the ultimate master. So whether we directly buy or sell or involved in other lines of work, the question for all of us is how we reflecting the character of God in our conducts. Your tax affairs as honest as they could be. If you're a manager, are you kind? Are you compassionate to your employees? If you're an employee, do you work hard, not stealing time from your company? Do you show integrity at work? For all of us, how does our conduct reflect the Lord who we worship? And we consider the someone who shows integrity. But there's a deeper truth here, one for all, whether we work or not. 
With no avar, there is no ultimate justice. The Lord getting what he deserves from us because the Lord is not our pride. That phrase in verse 7, the pride of Jacob, it appears only three times in the whole of the Old Testament, and two of them are in Amos. Back in chapter 6 and verse 8, we read this. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. See, the nation had looked inwardly and had given themselves the credit for the blessings that the Lord had given. And their pride just grew and grew and grew. And it was now so big that they couldn't see him. Their view of themselves had blocked out the view of the Lord. Yes, we'll give him lip service. Yes, we'll reference him from time to time. But ultimately, right at the center of it all, the one to be applauded and the one to give glory to is me. But in chapter 8 and verse 7, the Lord reclaims the phrase as a description of himself. I am the Lord. I am the pride of Jacob. He is to be their pride. He is to be the one that they boast in. He is to be the one that they glorify. But they didn't. And so verse 8 begins with some words that don't impact upon us anywhere near as much as they should. Will not the land tremble for this? The land. This is the promised land. This is Canaan. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. The land promised to Abraham a thousand years before. This was the place of blessing where God was to live with his people and there was to be peace, shalom. There was to be rest. There was to be joy. And now this land will tremble. It will tremble. With no avar, the Lord is not in his rightful place as the people's pride. And so no blessing is seen. There'll be no blessing in the land because the Lord is not where he should be. Now we know people who don't know Christ, who work with integrity, who serve the poor and demonstrate justice. But if the Lord is not their pride, then they are ultimately about themselves and not him. And no blessing can come from, what they play, from, from that place. For those who don't know him, for those who do, but know that their pride in him is slipping. We need Avar. We need the Lord to pass by in his glory so that his rightful place is restored in our hearts, in our minds. So with no avah, there is no true justice, and also there is no ultimate meaning. In verse 9, the second section begins again with in that day, and once again begins with judgment. Verse 9, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. It's a devastating reversal of the promise that God made to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. Have a look at these two bits compared next to each other. On the left, the promise to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. I will, I will, I will. What do we see in Amos uh, chapter eight? I will, I will, I will. But this time instead of blessing, there is curse. 
See, the light of the blessing to Abraham is replaced by the darkness of judgment. The joy of being a great nation is replaced by the mourning over the loss of that nation. The glory of being God's people is being replaced by the shame of being exiled from him. The comfort of being his firstborn son, his cherished possession, possession with the mourning that comes from losing and only son. This is the end. Everything is being reversed. Everything is being undone. The covenant is coming to an end. But if Israel aren't the Lord's, whose are they? Who do they belong to? What is their purpose? What is the meaning in their hearts? But no answer comes. Verse 11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food, or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. When I was young, I remember seeing pictures on the news uh, from the Ethiopian famine. I was quite young at the time, and I didn't really understand what was going on, but some of the pictures, they really troubled me. As I saw, maybe for the first time, just that the deep deprivation, the poverty, and the suffering that there was in other parts of the world. It was horrible seeing people look so thin, how you could see the bones through their skin. Their skin was so tight around each and every bone. And to hear that they had no access to the food that I had every day. I didn't need to think about what was happening. I knew that mum would work her magic in the kitchen and I'd be absolutely fine. It seemed like a different world. I just couldn't process it properly. It was heartbreaking. And here the Lord uses famine imagery to describe not a food and water famine, but in verse 11, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. The pictures I saw in the news are recreated here as people hunt for provision and nutrition. They stagger from sea to sea. They wander from north to east. They're desperately looking just for a morsel to grab hold onto, something that will give them hope, something that will give them nourishment. They're searching for meaning. They're searching for purpose. But it ends with those devastating words at the end of verse 12. But they will not find it. They will not find it. There is nothing waiting for them. There is no oasis in the desert. There is no hamper waiting for them at the end of the road. But they will not find it. This famine sent by the sovereign Lord himself will result in no one hearing his voice, no one seeing his glory, no avar, none. And for Israel, this meant their entire calling, their whole meaning was lost as they were to be a prophetic people, those who took the word of the Lord to the nations. That's how they were going to be a blessing to the world, by showing everyone what it meant to live every moment by the word of the Lord. And what was true for Israel? is true for us all. With no ava, there is no voice of the Lord, and so there is no meaning. To steal a phrase that Neil said this week, we're a nation that is materially rich, yet spiritually starved. See, our culture has ignored ava, has rejected the word of the Lord, and so meaning and purpose are lost. The big questions, who am I? What does it mean to live in this world? How can I make sense of everything that's going on? What is life all about? Ultimately, they can't be answered. Why? Because the Lord is the answer to them all. 
He is the answer. And so you ignore him and you're never going to get to the root of the answer. The difference between a healthy, well-nourished person and an unhealthy, undernourished person is clear, isn't it? If I brought someone in who was healthy and someone who was starved, you'd easily be able to tell the difference. And what is true when related to food is true when related to the word of God. No strength when it comes to meaning, to purpose, to eternal perspective. So three incredibly simple questions. Number one, how healthy are you? How healthy are you? There's a guy on YouTube who does, there's quite a lot of guys on YouTube who do this, but does eating challenges. Basically, he eats pretty much nothing for about two or three days. And then in a space of about an hour, he will just eat and eat and eat for the watching uh, pleasure of those who are tuning in. He will eat thousands and thousands of calories all in one go, just because people like me like to watch it. Now, thankfully, he discourages people from uh, copying it because he knows just how unhealthy it is. He knows that if people copy him without the training and the preparation that he does, it's not going to be healthy. And he might get a lot of lawsuits heading his way. I wonder if for some, his eating habits give a window into our spiritual diet. We come to church on Sunday, twice even, and we feast on the word of the Lord. Then not a lot happens on Monday, but then maybe on Tuesday evening at Refresh, we get a bit of a top up and we have a little bit more. But Wednesday to Saturday are basically empty. It's almost like we're fasting, like we've got a famine from the word of the Lord before we feast again on Sunday. But that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Why does the Bible talk about feeding on God's word? Why does it use food imagery? Well, partly because we understand how we are to sustain our bodies with food. And so we're supposed to apply that to uh, the word of the Lord. We're supposed to apply that to our spiritual food. Constantly coming back, constantly taking in, constantly finding nourishment from the spiritual food that the Lord has given us. So how healthy are you? Number two, are you feeding others? Are you feeding others? Parents, particularly dads, are you stepping up in your home, feeding your children with the word. You wouldn't dream of not giving them food. Are you giving them eternal food? And for all of us, are you pointing people to Christ? Are you bringing them the nourishment that they don't have? If someone's starving, who looked completely thin and lost when it came to food, what kind of person would turn them away? He'd say, let me give you, let me provide some food. And yet there are those who are spiritually starved, who are tiny in comparison, and need spiritual nourishment. Are we thrilling them with the wonder of Avar, testifying to the greatness of the Lord, saying, look, here is the glory of the God who made you and longs to save you. How healthy are you? Are you feeding others? And then number three, are we feeding you well? As elders of the church, we have a responsibility to nourish our people with a balanced diet to help as you feed yourself. So the question is, how are we doing? What morsels haven't you tasted for a while? Where are we giving you too much in one direction and not enough in the other? What can we do to better, to build up a healthy church, fully strong and equipped, ready to go on the mission that we are called uh, to? See, without the word of the Lord, all meaning and its purpose fades. We stagger around looking for something, but it's not there. We need to be well-fed. We need to be strong. 
We need to feed daily on the living bread to truly see the glory of the Lord. So no justice, no meaning, and without Avar, finally, no hope. The final part of this section is short, but definitely not sweet. Verse 13. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. See, when the Assyrians come, it will be the end. The future of the nation, the young men, the young women, those who people look at and think will be fine in the future. Look at these guys. They will faint. There will be no future generations. So there's no point in hoping in them. Don't put your hope in them because they'll be in exactly the same position as you. And then verse 14 just roars against the futility of hoping in false gods. Samaria, the capital and the religious center. Uh, described as the sin of Samaria because of the people's attitude to their religious worship. And then there's Dan, the northernmost tip of the kingdom, to Beersheba, the southernmost tip of the kingdom. Every false god that the people trust in leads only to another damning judgment. At the end of four, verse 14, they will fall, never to rise again. They will fall, never to rise again. There is no hope. There is no hope. No avat leads to no justice no meaning, and no hope, because it stems from no Lord. It's not just they've rejected these concepts. It's not just they've rejected a particular ideology. They have rejected the Lord himself. And because these blessings, because these good things flow from him, without him, they will not be seen. A rejection of him leads to blindness to his glory and a withholding of his blessing. And it's the end. It's the end. This is set. The Assyrians are coming and there's nothing you can do to turn it back. For Israel, there is no way back. There's no way out of the judgment. There's no hope of redemption. You know, it struck me this week that there are times when I don't think I truly believe that those, for those outside of the Lord, there is no hope. I always believe it in my head. Intellectually, I always know that outside of the Lord, there is no hope. I know that. If you ask me every second of every day, I would tell you that's the case. But there are times when my life, when my interactions with unbelievers suggest that maybe I don't fully believe it, that I think that people, well, they're okay. They're really good people. That actually maybe there is hope outside of the Lord Jesus. Intellectually, I tick every box, but functionally, sometimes in my heart, I change it ever so slightly, which is why I need Avar, which is why I need him to pass by in his glory. So I see more of who he is and realize that away from him, there is no hope. And my heart says, hallelujah, I'm with you every step of the way. So how do we do that? How do we get a handle on how do we make sure that our hearts are captivated? How do we make sure that we are thrilled and that we see the God that we need to see each day? In Mark 6, Jesus has left his disciples in a boat and he's gone up on a mountain to pray. We pick up the story in verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. 
he was about to pass by them. Jesus was to pass by. Now, obviously not avar, because this is Greek, not Hebrew, but it's the equivalent word. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the God of glory descending from his holy mountain to come to his people. But this time, rather than proclaiming judgment, he is coming to take judgment. Look at Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. What do those words remind you of? Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lame sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness of judgment, as Christ takes what he doesn't deserve, my sin and, my, and yours, the rebellion, the injustice, the falling short of the glory of God, the blindness that we place in front of our eyes that ignores who God is and says, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're doing. I'm going to live my life with me at the center. And is it too much of a stretch to say that at that moment, in a profound way that I will never understand, the Lord himself is mourning for an only son? Can we say that as the eternal son, the eternal son who loves his father, who understands his father like nobody else, can't even use his name. I can't say father. I've got to say my God, my God. Because there is distance. That in some inexplicable way that I can't explain, he is no longer a son. He is cut off. And God himself mourns because his son has been taken. See, the cross is the place where we see Avar, where we see the Lord passing by, displaying his glory, unfailing love and compassion in the midst of the heartlessness of his accusers. Ultimate justice in the greatest moment of injustice. What do we see in Amos? We see judgment on people who deserve it. What do we see at the cross? We see judgment on the only one who never deserved it. This is the glory of our God. We see meaning, true meaning, in the moment that screamed of meaningless. This is pointless. This is foolishness. There's nothing of any worth going on here. And yet here is ultimate meaning. And we see living, vibrant hope at the moment of cruel, seemingly hopeless death. What do you need each day? You need avar. You need the Lord to pass by, to show you his glory, to display the glory of the cross to you and in you daily. It needs to be so clear that others see it, that others understand what it is that makes you tick, that understand the God that you worship is the God that they need too. It's the remedy for your soul, the prescription from the great physician, that says, this is what you need. Take it every day and don't stop without fail. You need this. You need a va. You need a display of the glory of God. And so come to the cross. Because there at the cross, you will see and you will understand. You will see justice. You will see meaning. 
you will see hope and you'll see the answer to every darkness in your soul. Don't let yourself be blinded to the glory of the Lord. Don't let yourself slip away, slide away from that which you need every day. See it all. See it all in the face of Christ and rejoice because you belong to him. Judgment is in the past. There is glory ahead. And each day he will pass by and show you just how glorious he is. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need these words. How often we can become complacent about ourselves, about those who don't know you. I know how we need for you to pass by, to show us your glory, so that we who belong to you are once again thrilled and captivated by your beauty. And the darkness of our own hearts, of those who don't know Christ, are revealed so we see just how much we need you. Oh, Father, as Mark prayed, we pray again for our land. We pray in our spiritually starved world that there would be a great outpouring, a great feasting upon your word, that there would be a turning to you as people find justice and meaning and hope in you. Father, show us your glory. May we, your people, who know these things, may we truly believe it. Forgive me, Lord, for those times when what I know in my head doesn't translate into my life. But may we be the ones who stand as those forgiven, stand as those redeemed, stand as those lights on a hill and proclaim the true light of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you went through the darkness. Thank you that you took it all upon yourself, the darkness of my heart, the darkness of all our hearts, the darkness of judgment. Thank you that you took it all so that we may know your father. We may know him as our own. And thank you that we know blessing and that you've set us on a path that leads to you. Oh Lord, bring us back to you each day, I pray, that by your spirit you would show us more of Christ and that our hearts would be ever more gripped by who you are. Sovereign Lord, show us your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.